Good afternoon and welcome to uh, Princeton University for our visitors. Uh, it's a pleasure to uh, have you all here and it's a very, very great uh, honor to uh, welcome to Princeton University uh, Justice Stephen Breyer. Before uh, we begin our uh, conversation, conversation that I hope that you will all be a part of as well, uh, I would like to thank uh, the co-sponsors of this event. I have the honor to be director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions, and we're cooperating with uh, uh, Professor Kim Shepley and uh, the Program in Law and Public Affairs, which she directs, and Professor Stephen Macedo and the University Center for Human Values, which uh, he directs. Uh, Kim, are you here? Steve, are you here? Okay, good, good. Thank you so much. It is just so wonderful that uh, the units of the university who are dedicated, at least as part of their missions, to the study and uh, to study and teaching in uh, law, cooperate to enrich the environment of our uh, university when it comes to uh, legal studies. So I thank very much those uh, co-sponsors. The origins of uh, today's events are at Harvard, uh, where in uh, 2004. Justice Breyer gave the Tanner Lectures on Human uh, Values, and I had the uh, honor on that occasion, together with Professor Gordon Wood of Brown University, to be a respondent to uh, uh, Justice Breyer. And when I was invited uh, to, to do that, uh, the expectation was that because uh, I am something of a conservative and Justice Breyer is regarded as something of a liberal, that uh, my job would be to uh, provide a critical comment uh, on his Tanner Lectures, which eventually I managed to do, but it took me quite a while, uh, more than 50 pages into the uh, lectures before I could find something to disagree with. Uh, in fact, there were points at which I was cheering. And uh, that was not because uh, Justice Breyer wasn't saying anything uh, interesting and even uh, controversial, uh, but rather because he was reviving a very, very important aspect of the American constitutional tradition, which he argued entirely persuasively from my vantage point, and I believe it's fair to say also from Professor Wood's vantage point. He was arguing that the balance perhaps had tipped a little too far in constitutional interpretation in the direction of what is called negative liberty, the freedom from interference by others, and particularly freedom from interference uh, by the government, and perhaps away from something that an earlier generation of uh, Americans very highly valued in their understanding of the Constitution, what Justice Breyer called active liberty, the liberty that we exercise when we participate as citizens in civic affairs, the liberty that we exercise as citizens of a self-governing regime, a democratic uh, republic. And Justice Breyer spelled that out uh, very effectively and persuasively uh, in his lectures uh, and then applied the ideas that he was uh, adumbrating about active liberty to some particular constitutional problems and then concluded by taking issue with uh, some alternative approaches uh, to constitutional interpretation that are alive and important and advocated even by some of his colleagues uh, on the court. Well, those lectures became his book, Active Liberty. And when I invited uh, Justice Breyer to come down to Princeton to talk about uh, active uh, liberty, he proposed that we continue the conversation that we 
uh, began at Harvard and bring you, the Princeton audience, into that conversation. And so I am delighted uh, that we're going to be able to do that this afternoon. Justice Breyer was born in San Francisco. He was educated at Stanford, at Oxford University, and at Harvard Law School. Uh, when he completed law school, he made his, uh, he got his first employment at the Supreme Court of the United States, and that was as a law clerk to uh, Justice Arthur Goldberg. He uh, then uh, went on uh, to have a career teaching at Harvard Law School and at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, but also a career in the practice of law in the Justice Department of the United States and as an assistant Watergate special prosecutor. In 1980, he was appointed to the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit by President Jimmy Carter, and then in 1990 was made Chief Judge of the First Circuit. In 1994, he was appointed to the Supreme Court of the United States by President Clinton. Uh, Justice Breyer did not come to uh, the judicial, his judicial role as a person with an academic uh, specialty in constitutional law. His work, rather, was in administrative law and regulation and related fields. That's what he taught when uh, uh, I was a student at the Harvard Law School and was foolish enough not to take his courses. Now, I have some students out there who are going to law school. I've written their recommendations, and so I know who you are. And let me admonish you, do not make my mistake of failing to take courses from future Supreme Court justices. <laughs> so with no further ado, let me ask you to join me in welcoming Justice Breyer, who will give us uh, uh, an opening sense of what he means by active liberty and its importance. Justice Breyer. Thank you for the introduction. Thank you. Uh, it's really very nice to be at Princeton. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. And for you to be in here uh, today is really, uh, you get a medal from, for, for that. <laughs> There's music in the back. <laughs> it made me think, as you're interested in, what's this? I mean, I'm not used to these machines. I mean, but the, the uh, uh, it made me think that, People are always saying, which you might sometimes, you know, things were better in the old days. And I tried, well, when did that start? And uh, so I, we were had a trip a few summers ago. We were in Crete, where they have the Minoan civilization. And nothing was better than that. Uh, why not? Because apparently they didn't have wars. Uh, they didn't have conflict. Uh, all they did uh, was sing and dance. Now, Princeton is trying to revive that tradition. <laughs> but uh, uh, it's nice, and it's very nice. My first employer, the former Attorney General of the United States, Nicholas Katzenbach, is here, and I appreciate his having <laughs> But I'll go back to the, the, this book. Why, why did I write the book? Uh, and I think it's important to know that because you'll then see what I was trying to do. Uh, I'd be, I've been a member of the Supreme Court now for almost 12 years, 11 and a half years. I, I was almost the, and I was junior justice that entire time until a couple of months ago. And I was almost, you know, the oldest junior justice they ever had. <laughs> uh, uh, I, uh, 
was hoping to achieve a record uh, as an answer to a trivia question, but, but I uh, missed it by month. Uh, and my job was basically as junior justice was to open the door at the conference in case someone knocked, and sometimes they did with a piece of paper for someone. We were alone, and uh, occasionally a glass of coffee, a cup of coffee. Well, they had that one came, person knock with a cup of coffee for Justice Scalia about uh, a while ago, I brought it over there, and he said, uh, well, you've been doing this for a long time. I said, yep, I've gotten pretty good at it. And, and he said, uh, well, no, you haven't, actually. But, but the, 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 uh, anyway, Sam Alito has now taken my seat, which is hard to give up. Uh, I sat at the conference Friday. I went into his seat, which I used to. The Chief Justice said, you are a creature of habit. The, the, uh, and his now, he'll now have to open the door, which I pointed out. And I've said, I, I think you're up to that. And uh, he is. Uh, the, so in any case, the serious point of being a judge in that court for 11 and a half years is that after a period of time, and it does take time to adjust, after a period of time, uh, I think a judge on our Supreme Court begins to do what's special about that court. It's a special opportunity. The job is different from that of an appeals court judge in a special way. And when asked to describe that way, I say, well, we have, unlike the lower courts, a steady diet of constitutional cases, not just one occasionally or not just in one area. And over time, you begin to have decisions to make in many different areas of constitutional law. And because of that, the job forces you to begin to see the Constitution as a whole. It forces a member of our court to begin to take a view of the document. What is this document basically about? Well, I wondered when I had to give these lectures if I could put down in writing not a theory, it's not a theory of constitutional law, but rather a, a point of view, an approach. Can I write coherently what that Constitution is, simply and as a whole, the Constitution that I'm forced, because of my job, uh, or given the opportunity, because of that job to work with every day? Well, that was one thing that led me to write this. And the second is that Justice O'Connor... Justice Kennedy and I were at a meeting in California with Vartan Gregorian and some others where they wanted to know what we thought should be taught to high school students about the Constitution. That's a big question, important problem, important question. Uh, and uh, we had in front of us surveys of different lawyers that were asked to those lawyers, uh, what do you think is the most important part? And some of them have said First Amendment, free expression, some said free religion, uh, some said uh, privacy or equal protection. There were a few other answers, but way down on the list was the single word that the three of us said, but that's what it's about. And it didn't take us any time, one-tenth of a second. Because it's about that word way down here, that's what it's about, and, and that word is democracy. I said last night, which is true, it's like Holmes, it's like a pose purloined letter. You know, it stares you in the face, so you don't see it. It doesn't use the word democracy, but that's what it's doing. It's creating democratic institutions. So I wanted to write that down, uh, because that is the central idea. And simply what this book tries to do 
is it tries to describe what that central idea is and how it fits in, and then how useful it is, and it is useful, in deciding individual cases, uh, and I have to illustrate that. Because the way in which the democratic theme works in the Constitution uh, to decide individual cases is complicated uh, and surprising in some instances. So what is the document when I describe it in a word? I think I can describe it in a very few words. Uh, the view that I think most of us have, or certainly I do and I suspect others do, on the court is what is this document about? Well, it's a constitution. It's not a Bill of Rights. Bill of Rights is part of it. It constitutes what? A government. What kind of a government? A government that is basically a democratic form of government. Now, a certain kind of democracy. A democracy that does protect basic human rights, that does insist on a certain degree of equality so that government respects citizens equally. A government that does divide power vertically, states, federal, Horizontally, three branches, executive, legislative, judicial, all right? Uh, so that no group of people becomes too powerful. Uh, you have separations and divisions of power there, pockets of power. And a document that insists that our country is a country governed by the rule of law. Now, I can't say it in one word, but I can say it in under in a minute. And then, if you look at... Put the people. Isn't that what this document does? You know, you can have pick fine arguments, this or that. That's a yell. That's basically what it's about. I say, well, if that's so, it's then important not to forget the democratic theme. The theme that what? That tells the Supreme Court, among others, what it's supposed to do. Because once you see the document, and that is what it does, that way, you see it as creating a tremendously broad area where the primary objective is not to tell people what to do. It provides a system for them themselves to decide what to do through their democratic representatives. That's what it's about. It's about people electing others and deciding for themselves in communities what kind of uh, governments, what kind of rules, what kind of substantive rules of law or other kinds of customs, behaviors they want themselves to govern their own communities. And what are we doing on the Supreme Court? Well, I, I think of us as uh, we're the boundary patrol. Worthy, I saw Johnny Cash, you know, I thought that was a good movie. We walk the lines. Our, our job over here is to keep the government within the boundaries. We're patrolling the boundaries of that vast area where people uh, make decisions for themselves. We're to see that that process stays on the rails. Now, I'm not saying that life is easy at the boundaries. I'm not saying that the questions we decide are unimportant. They're very important, often, sometimes less, and indeed they're often very controversial. But it's terribly important to keep in mind what it is we're doing, which is we're over here at the edges, saying when this legislature or that group of people organized in this form of government have gone too far. That's what I mean by the job of the Supreme Court in enforcing this document. And it becomes fairly obvious once you're there for a while. 
Uh, and once you see the nature of the decision-making process on the court and what it is we're dealing with, because so many cases that people write in the newspaper as if we're saying how people should decide this or that or the other issue are really, in fact, when you look into it, questions about what part of the government is supposed to decide. They're almost very often procedural questions. This is this person's authority. This is that group's authority. This is over there or there. We're keeping the system on the rails. That's what I think we're supposed to do, and that's pretty much what we try to do, though, of course, there are tremendous controversies about many of the cases in which we've said this or that is outside the boundary. Now, is that useful, other than being civics, uh, very elementary civics? I think it is more useful than, you, than, than I think a person would ordinarily think. Now, why? Well, what I've tried to do is go through some cases and show uh, the reader, uh, who may not have time to read the opinions themselves, and this is at a somewhat more philosophical level, and therefore the reasoning isn't always in the opinions themselves. I've tried to show how understanding this document as being one primarily designed to create a democratic process of decision can help decide matters at the boundary. I'll give you a couple of examples. Example one, very controversial, campaign finance. Now, here is a law that tells individual Americans that they cannot give more than so much money to a candidate whom they support. Now, the individual said, but I want to give more. I believe in this person. I want to work for him. I can do that. Why can't I write a check? I want to write a check. I want a very big check. Some can do that. Few public servants, but nonetheless, some can do it. And why shouldn't I? And there's the First Amendment, and it says freedom of expression. Well, I'm expressing myself. QED. This is unconstitutional. Now, does looking at the document, the Constitution that contains a First Amendment as a whole, help us as the judges arrive at its conclusion about that? I think it helps. It doesn't determine the conclusion. Why? Well, think for a minute about the object of the First Amendment in this document. If you see the document as a document that's designed to produce a well-functioning democratic process, then you'll see the First Amendment as first and foremost trying to create a system of expression that will help people in a democracy make those decisions as to policy or persons that it is their right to make. And pretty soon you'll begin to think and look at the motives of those who want or the reasons of those who want these limitations and measure it up against that basic purpose. And as soon as you do that, it becomes very difficult to take one of two absolute approaches. See, some say, this is obviously constitutional. They're just regulating money. Money isn't speech. It's money. So regulate money. This isn't speech. Please, please. Uh, money may not be speech, but in today's world, and maybe there was no other, money is the only way you're going to communicate a message broadly. And so you limit money, and you've limited speech. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But then, is it just expression? A limitation on expression? I said, wait a minute. We better think about this one. 
Because why is it that this expression is being limited? Well, the reason is, you don't have to look far to find out what the legislators who do that thought about it. They said there are a few people with a vast amount of money that in effect can, put in quotes because I don't want to be pejorative, they hog the public forum. They drive out the other message. Well, you used to be surprised what a billion or two can do in politics. I mean, uh, they, they will drive out the other messages with the power of their pocketbook. And so what we're trying to do here is to create a forum where different messages have an opportunity to get through to the listener. Who is the listener? The listener is the person who will participate in this process through voting. Now, I'm simplifying, but not too much. Because as soon as we see that as the primary objective, all of a sudden we realize there is no easy answer to this question. And we saw it as complicated because we related the First Amendment's words freedom of expression to the basic objective of the document, which is to permit ordinary citizens to choose for themselves what kind of government they want, what kind of policy they want. Now, I stop there because as soon as you get to that point, you understand there are First Amendment interests on both sides of this equation. And you understand that you're not going to get to an answer as a judge simply by stating what I tend to think of as a slogan. Rather, it requires considerable thought to go through into this in detail, and the court has, and by and large, the court has upheld limits on campaign finance. Not expenditure limits, but contribution limits. And it is not said that in the balance, one side weighs more than the other. It's tried to look at the details. And uh, in looking at the details, it's, it's found risks in campaign finance limitations. There are risks. There are risks that the people who are writing it could write themselves into office by making it hard for a challenger to challenge. So what you'll see in the opinions is you'll see in the opinions a general First, always a balancing, a general tendency to let the legislature write limits on the ability to contribute, and a concern lest they go too far. In other words, a complex judicial response to a difficult question, rather than a question that becomes easy to answer, because all you do is look at the words freedom of expression, or look at the word money. So my point here, rather than going to that into any more depth, is simply to say, Look at the document as a whole, and you begin to understand the relationship between the First Amendment and the rest, and that helps a judge get to what I think uh, is a sensible answer in terms of the overall constitutional plan. I'll give you a second example, if you'd like, one that's probably more controversial. Very, and, and it's surprising, and that's why I want to use it. It's surprising that the democratic view plays so directly into the result. Subject, affirmative action. Hmm. Difficult question. Why difficult? Well, because it takes us back to the words in the Constitution's Fourth Amendment that say, no state shall deprive a person of equal protection of the law. All right, remember those words. Equal protection of the law. Well, there are two views of what those mean. And I promise you, 
Each view has something to be said for it. One, I'll call it the colorblind view. And the word colorblind comes from Justice Harlan's dissenting opinion in Plessy, doesn't it? He saw what was trouble we were going to get into with Plessy. Namely, we're going to have segregation, and we did have segregation for 80 years. And he says the Constitution is colorblind. And now today, we're talking about positive, not negative discrimination. And we're talking about the degree of freedom of a government institution to do it. That word colorblind is still there, though, in his opinion. And one view of that 14th Amendment is that Equal protection means colorblind. No account of race can be taken. That's too dangerous a thing to do. You think it's good, somebody else will think it's bad. Who knows, this is a nightmare. There's only one possible rule, colorblind. Now, under that approach, affirmative action or positive discrimination is out, period, no matter what. Second view. Call it the purposive approach. Purposive approach, look at that 14th Amendment and say, why did they write it? Who wrote it? People in Congress ratified by the states, when? Just after the Civil War? Why? Because there were people who had been slaves and they were free. And we've got to bring them into society and we want to eliminate discrimination against them by the government when they're brought in as full citizens of the United States of America, which they are now and should be. And I can add as a person and should have been. But they weren't. So we fought a war. Now, looking at the purpose here, you would say there is a difference between discrimination that tries to take the former slaves or their descendants or minority groups and make them worse off which is totally contrary to the purpose of this amendment, or discrimination that is trying to make them somewhat better off. There's a difference. I'm not saying the second's always right or always constitutional. I'm just saying there's a difference, and a constitutional difference. All right. Now we have two views. There's a lot to be said for the first. There's a lot to be said for the second. So how do we decide? Well, in the Michigan case, where, in fact, the court is looking at, is it constitutional for a state law school to discriminate somewhat in favor of minority groups, other things being equal? Or is it absolutely out? The first view, the colorblind view, out. The second view, the purposive view, may be in if they do it properly, tailored, etc., Which is it? All right. Now, I do not, I, do, I did decide on the, with the second, but I don't want to, this is not a mystery drama here. With the, I, I was in favor of the second view. But what, I'm, what I want you to see here is how this democratic idea plays into the result of choosing between the two views. We got 120 briefs in that case. My goodness. I mean, normally we have 10 or 15. But, and they were good. It wasn't just repetitive. I thought, you know, you get 120 briefs in a, in a case involving affirmative action, a big visible issue that they're going to be political speeches and, and uh, they aren't going to be really very good and analytically at least a lot. No, not political speeches on both sides. They had really gone into this and all kinds of groups were thinking about it seriously under legal standards.
And members of the armed forces told us, and if you want to see the result of what they told us, you just read the opinion of the case. It marched right into Justice O'Connor's opinion, which I joined. They said, look, we must have a degree of affirmative action because we have to train people who will become officers in this army and it is going to be white officer corps unless you give us the ability to put in a little bit, not an enormous amount, of affirmative action when we're training. And we can't run an army in the United States of America where we have two classes, enlisted men and army officers, and they are divided by race. The business community, IBM, uh, uh, probably Microsoft, I don't remember, but there were a lot. They came in the business community in several briefs and said, we want to tell you something about how we run our business. In today's world, we must have a diverse executives. We must have diversity throughout the business because we are selling to people all over the world as well as the United States, and we must have the authority and ability to make some effort here to make certain that racial minorities are represented. Unions tell us the same. Educational institutions say we don't want to do it much, but let us do it some, because we want to have an opportunity to give others an opportunity from racial minority coming into this university so we do not have just one group of citizens and other citizens, 12, 15, 18, maybe 20% of America, looking around at the universities, at the army, at the trades unions, at every other institution of government, say, that's them, not us. That's what we don't want. Why not? Well, so let's go back to the document. The document is trying to produce a system of government where people will participate choosing for themselves what kind of policies they want. Can the country work in that respect if 15 or 20% of the public is saying, that's them, not us? Let's ask James Madison. Some of our members of our court like to go back into history. James, you know, what do you see between these two interpretations? What is it? One of them is going to take a large number of Americans, and they're going to believe this isn't our country. And the other is going to permit, at least to a degree, trying to bring them in. Now, which of those is more consistent with your basic intent in creating a set of democratic institutions to govern America? Of course, I have him here, but he can't respond, so I have to put words in his mouth. But I think the answer is obvious. I mean, we have to have an inclusive rather than an exclusive society. Now, I'm not saying I'm perfectly right in this. I am saying that that chain of reasoning is a way, and if you read the majority in the Supreme Court, I think you'll see I've, I've tracked pretty closely what the majority of the court is saying. And the majority of the court there is, in fact, choosing a purposive interpretation. Why? Because it is informed by the basic democratic idea of the document. Now, there are other instances, and I'm absolutely not saying that the notion of democracy dictates results in case after case. It doesn't. But it can 
inform the reasoning and approach in particular cases in interesting ways and ways that I think lead to a judge seeing the document as a whole in terms of its basic purposes and then coming to results that are sounder in terms of those basic purposes. All right, well, that gives you an idea in any way, and maybe I'll jump right to the end and say that, of course, there is a commercial message in what I say. And you're part of the people I talk to, the younger ones here anyway. I say to the student audiences, and I put it to the epilogue of the book, because this is I get a commercial message. The commercial message is aimed at the younger members of my audience. And the commercial message is not really commercial, but it's simply this is to say that uh, if this, if you agree so far, and it's a short book, so we'll actually reach the last page, maybe. Uh, the, 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 I say, if you agree so far, then I can tell you this. I can tell you if you think that this document is basically a document that aims at a democratic society with certain boundaries, well then, I can tell you as a judge, my own view of it, as I've worked there for 12 or 11, almost 12 now, years, is that this document won't work unless people take advantage of the opportunity that it presents, namely participate. I can't tell you what to do, but I can tell you what will happen if you don't. And I admit that, of course, I'm trying to tell you what to do. <laughs> but uh, the point is, it is a document that foresees people participating. Uh, and that's why it was a good slogan. I didn't think of it, but it described as what well, we don't need activist judges, but we do need activist citizens. Uh, and really what I've tried to do is explain how, from the viewpoint of a judge, uh, I get to that conclusion. And along the way, uh, try to, what I'd call, redress a balance here, get people to focus on the democratic nature of the Constitution and show how that can influence particular results and how it gives you a message. Uh, the younger ones, and the older ones do, uh, about uh, not giving up and participating and getting out there, and you don't like what somebody else says, well, convince them. That's the point. All right, enough of the book. Thanks. Good. Thank you, Justice Brian. Well, let's begin the uh, conversation by talking about democratic procedures. And uh, let's use as an example the campaign uh, finance issues that Justice Breyer raised. Uh, as Justice Breyer has outlined uh, the case, we have two different conceptions about what is the best way to conduct our democracy with respect to the question of money uh, in campaigns. And as Justice Breyer said, this is a legitimate debate. People of goodwill, reasonable people, uh, on both uh, sides of it. Should there be restrictions on the amount that can be contributed and so forth, or should there not be, which makes for a better view. Uh, so if we can generalize from that, we've got a question about what the best procedures of democracy are. But anytime you have a question, you need to allocate authority for resolving the question institutionally. So it seems to me then the question becomes one of the role of the courts vis-a-vis -vis the legislature. With respect to the question, what are the best procedures of democracy, we now have to ask, is it the proper province 
uh, of the court to resolve the question, what are the best procedures of democracy? Or should that question itself be determined by democratic deliberation uh, via representative democracy in the legislature, uh, legislatures? So I have a question uh, based on Justice uh, Breyer's uh, analysis of that uh, particular problem. It looks to me, Justice Breyer, like at the end of the day, where you come down on this is not in favor of one view or another about what procedures are the best democratic procedures, but rather you come down in favor of deference. What you're saying, I think, is that the question whether it's overall and in the long run best for democracy to limit campaign uh, contributions is one that should be decided by the legislature, by the democratic process itself. So you will not strike down restrictions. But if the legislature, the Congress, came out the other way and let it be a free flow of money, you wouldn't impose restrictions based on the constitutional ideal of democracy. Am I right about that? Right. But, but, <laughs> but there is a problem here, which is a problem for my own view. Because if you take this view, of course I'll say, of course it's up to the legislature. Of course it is. And uh, within broad limits, we'll defer to however, whatever they think. Well, whatever. I mean, suppose they write themselves into office. And that isn't too hard to do in a world where the power of incumbency is great. And they say, uh, everyone knows the name of the incumbent. Nobody's ever heard of the challenger. And the incumbent also has the support of the New York Times. Hmm. Now, what about that one? And they, what happens in this, it appears to be absolutely, uh, uh, absolutely uh, uh, on the up and up. They all say we're trying to fight the power of money. But it just turns out that they don't fight the power of the press, which you can't. Now what? Now what? So what I've written on it in a case called Nixon and Shrink is that if you do take the view that I have, you're going to give a lot of deference, but at some point you'll discover that this particular effort to limit campaign finance uh, contributions goes too far. Hmm. Hmm. Who's going to decide that one? Well, that runs into the problem of, let's call it, the fox is guarding the chicken coop. <laughs> and uh, therefore, a judge will have to look pretty closely very closely at details when that becomes, on its face, a problem. And you can say, give them a lot of leeway before it becomes a problem. But once you think it becomes a problem, the judge is going to have to look into it. I say, what qualifies the judge? How can the judge do that any better than anybody else? The answer is really the judge can't. But uh, somebody has to. And uh, this is not unknown to First Amendment law. Indeed, there are cases that say when, in fact, you get a, a law that on its face seems fine and it restricts speech, an appeals court, the Supreme Court, will look beyond the record in the case and will have to go into it in depth to be sure what's going on is not, is not an effort to restrict speech under the guise of something else. So there is a tool there in the law that can be used in this instance. 
And I'm sure he wanted to bring this up because it is an instance where I, who normally would say, you've got to defer, you've got to defer, suddenly my back is against the wall with my own view of it, which happens to be the court's view, I think, in these cases, too, for a long period of time, say, uh, well, but now I, I'm going to require the judge in certain instances to go into the individual facts in some depth to see if it looks like that was what's going on, and that's a hard thing to decide. And you say, well, why would I do that? And I just say, I don't see the alternative. And the alternative there is either say no campaign finance limits at all, which would, I think, for reasons I've stated, be a problem, or say that they can do whatever they want. And that, because of this writing incumbency uh, is risk, uh, also would be a problem. So we reach, uh, in decisions that I and others have joined, uh, what I call uh, the uneasy compromise the uneasy compromise uh, of which the Constitution has many. And uh, there we are. And you say, well, am I being inconsistent? No, I obviously don't think so. But uh, uh, that'll be up to us. Uh, of course, many people would say, including me, that uh, we have incumbents writing themselves permanently into office now with the gerrymander. Uh, whether it, uh, and it, and this is not something that uh, it's a, uh, one party or the other's monopoly. If uh, the Republicans uh, have control of the Texas legislature, they'll do it there. If the Democrats have control of the California legislature, they'll do it there. And it seems to me one vexing area for you and for the and for the court, and they keep coming back at you every couple of years, is the question, what is the proper role of the court in determining legislative districts? And if the court intervenes, is that even though for the sake of democracy, having a good democracy where incumbents can't write themselves into yeah, yeah. office, is that a violation of the principle of active liberty because we're taking it out of the legislative process? No, well, that's where actually the, the democracy uh, helps there because uh, taking something out of the democratic process to try to make certain that it doesn't become totally undemocratic uh, makes a certain sense. And it's also consistent with the idea of the court as policing the boundaries to make certain that the process in the middle works. And, and so there's not an inconsistency there. The trouble with the gerrymandering cases has been, and we decided this in a case called Veith not very long ago, uh, the, the, the court pretty much said that this is a problem, but five members of the court thought it was impossible to find workable standards uh, for judges uh, trying to uh, overcome gerrymandering problems. And four members of the court, of which I was one, uh, thought, well, we can come up with some standards, minimal though they are. And then the majority replied to us by saying, well, the dissent thinks that it's possible to come up with uh, standards, at least to assure a, a workable minimum here, but each one of those four has a different standard. No, well, that was a fair criticism. Uh, but uh, uh, perhaps if we'd been five, we could have gotten together on something. So there's a disagreement among the nine of us uh, as to whether it's possible to come up with workable standards uh, in respect to gerrymandering. That was up till now. There is another case in front of us at the moment. Okay. And if I say anything that sounds like a comment on any present cases, it is a lapse of sanity on my part, <laughs> and it does not uh, refer to any present case. Well, let's move to the second example that uh, Justice Breyer uh, cites, and that's the affirmative action area. And here again, we find Justice Breyer uh, defending what uh, amounts to deference, in this case, deference to the political uh, branches in the state of Michigan or wherever it is, who uh, want to 
NACTA uh, for purposes in education or contracting or whatever, a uh, policy of racial or ethnic preferences. So the question here becomes, if in the name of a particular purpose of reading of the Constitution, reading the Equal Protection Clause in light of its purposes, that understanding of the Constitution, if the court is justified in upholding the racial preference uh, policy, would the court be no less justified in imposing a racial preference policy of a similar nature on a jurisdiction that elected not to have a racial preference scheme? Because after all, if we're to read the equal protection law in view of its purposes, and if in view of its purposes we see it as legitimate to have racial preferences, why aren't we required to have them for all the, all the reasons that you articulated, to make sure people feel included, that they're really full citizens of the democracy and so forth? Uh, nothing in the opinion suggests that you people have to have them. I understand. I wonder why. Well, I usually don't speculate on cases that aren't in front of us, but I mean, but it's, it's perfectly obvious there isn't one person in this room who doesn't understand perfectly well that affirmative action is a hugely debatable subject and how you do it and when and under what circumstances and when it goes too far and uh, whether you should have it here or not there and to what extent. And so uh, our people, the people debate this enormously and there are all kinds of things to be said in the details there. So the court has never suggested that you have to do it. Uh, but where the, the basic idea of, the, of the, the question in front of us is whether that 14th Amendment prohibited it. And it's pretty hard for me to see a part, you know, I don't want to speculate what could come up, but it's pretty hard to see how somebody's going to argue the, what you're, you're saying. In any case, if they did argue that, they haven't. Well, I wanted Good. to test the principle. That's your job. My <laughs> job is to decide the case. <laughs> Well, let me uh, stay with affirmative action just to ask uh, uh, one more question on it. One of the most interesting things about uh, the case is that uh, you and Justice O'Connor were, although you were in the majority in both cases, uh, in both cases, very interestingly, you were being uh, attacked from both sides. Uh, Justice Scalia's opinion was uh, criticizing you in the name of the colorblind conception. And Justice Ginsburg's opinion was criticizing you. And of course, the opinion was actually by Justice uh, O'Connor, but as I recall, you joined it. Uh, from the perspective of saying, well, look, if we're permitted to do, if, if the state is permitted to do in the law school case uh, what it was doing by informal means to ensure a certain sort of racial makeup, why should the college, Michigan College, not be permitted to do it by formalized? means with a point system that would award points for many things, including uh, contributing racial uh, uh, diversity. Justice Ginsburg, as I recall, said in criticism of you and Justice uh, O'Connor that it just doesn't make sense to say that you're allowed to do with winks and nods what you can't do directly. That's a question of quotas. And, and there, whether the, whether the school can have quotas, is you have to trace back to an opinion of Justice Powell in the Bakke case, where he had written that, that what's going to be uh, uh, permissible constitutionally is affirmative action, yes, but it has to be individualized. And you have to make individualized considerations of the individual. So it's a factor, but you can't go too far. And he wrote that, that uh, uh, 
uh, that going too far is simply to have racial quotas. And I suppose in back of that opinion is, is the thought that has happened in some countries that you get a degree of balkanization uh, by having quotas in the system forever that also can prevent the development of a cooperative society in which everybody feels that he's an individual and is taking part. And, and so that's reflected there in the law, and that law, at least in, in Justice Powell's opinion, and Justice O'Connor's opinion picks that up, and I, I, I accepted that. I went along with that. Okay. Um, one of the reasons I was uh, uh, cheering through the first 50 pages. Then he uh, stopped cheering. Then I stopped. <laughs> Master ran into something he didn't like there. <laughs> right. And for, the, for the detailed reasons of why I, my cheering cooled a little bit, uh, my uh, comment on Justice Breyer's lectures are actually posted on the James Madison program website. So if you'd like to have a look, you uh, can. But we're here today not to hear me, but to hear uh, Justice Breyer. So I won't go into those details. But one of the reasons I was cheering was precisely this notion of active citizenship. As a teacher of constitutional interpretation now for over uh, 20 years. One of the things I most lament that I hear from my students when they come into the class, and I, I, I try to make sure they don't think this when they walk out of the class, is that the Constitution is for the courts, and it's not for the legislatures, and it's not for the executive, and it's not for the citizens. And Justice Breyer in his lectures and in his book, Active Liberty, has restored uh, the idea that uh, uh, our Constitution is a Constitution that calls for active citizenship, and it's a Constitution that has implications for all of us. So let me ask Justice Breyer about the following phenomenon which we hear, I think, all too often. The reason we're able to hear it is that we have C-SPAN now, and so we can watch uh, the members of Congress. And often they will be debating a possible piece of legislation, perhaps something very, very important, like uh, national security uh, legislation, the, what became the Patriot Act and so forth. And there will be a debate, and you will hear the congressmen going back and forth with each other, and a congressman will raise a critical question about the piece of legislation. And uh, the congressman might ask, well, aren't we violating the Constitution? But then the proposer or defender of the legislation will say, well, that's not for us to decide. We need to do what we think will protect the public or advance the common good or whatever, and we'll leave it to the courts to decide the constitutionality uh, of the legislation. Uh, is that a phenomenon that arises precisely because we have lost the sense of active citizenship, that the balance has tilted too far over toward the negative liberty side? And would you see as part of the goal encouraging debate over constitutional questions in the legislative halls and among the citizenry? Well, and of course it's up to them to decide this too. As to the causes, if people say that, uh, well, you're the political scientist, I'm the lawyer, and, and I don't know. But the, the fact is, everyone, I mean, there's, Justice Jackson described this years ago uh, when he talked about the Supreme Court. He said, no one understands what he meant, by the way, but he, he said, we're not, uh, we're not final because we're infallible. Uh, he said, we're infallible because we're final. Now, I promise you, no one knows what that means. But, <laughs> but what, they, what he means is that we do not have the last word because we are so brilliant. We are, of course, brilliant. But only in the sense that someone has to have the last word. 
and on many, but not all, constitutional interpretive questions, we do have the last word. And that's grown up over time through Marbury versus Madison and other things. But if we have the last word in certain areas, that doesn't mean that people uh, don't have the right, perhaps the obligation, to make up their own minds about whether something is or is not constitutional when they're passing legislation. That's why the Department of Justice, if it's interpreting, will, uh, looking at a law, will give their opinion. And so will others. And so does the president have that obligation. So does the Congress. Of course they do. Uh, and now it may be that if a case comes up to us, we will have the last word because of Marbury versus Madison. Yeah? Doesn't mean it's anything other than that. And the reason we have it is because someone has to have it. And uh, uh, for reasons that are complex but fairly obvious, uh, it's good perhaps to have an independent group of people appointed for life as judges who will have the last word on constitutional interpretation in a large number of matters. That itself is debatable, but it's grown up over time. Okay. Uh, it was as late as 1958, I believe, in the case of Cooper against Aaron that the court formally declared that uh, it, the court itself, the Supreme Court of the United States, is supreme in the exposition of the Constitution, and it uh, did not give a detailed argument for that, but it cited Marbury versus Madison, as you just did, Justice Breyer. But this raises a very, very um, profound, in my view, uh, question, and one of some uh, sensitivity. Uh, President Lincoln, in his first inaugural address, when he was addressing, which he had to do, the question of the Supreme Court's decision in Dred Scott against Sanford, a very important decision about the authority of Congress to regulate and even prohibit slavery in the federal territories, a, a, a decision which itself, uh, in the end, many historians believe uh, helped to precipitate the Civil War. But when Lincoln addressed the decision, he addressed exactly the question of whether the Supreme Court always does have the final word and what the scope of its authority was. And, and Lincoln contested the broad reading of judicial power, uh, saying that uh, if the policy of the government uh, is to be determined once and for all by the members of the Supreme Court in a case of ordinary litigation between parties, uh, that uh, the principle of democracy or republicanism, as he would call it, self-government, will have been resigned into the hands of that eminent tribunal. So Lincoln said he's got to obey the court in the particular case. He would says that if the case had come up on his watch, he would have enforced the order to send Dred Scott back into slavery. But he suggests very strongly that he would not treat it as a binding rule. If he, he himself thought as a matter of constitutional law that the constitution to which he had taken an oath of obedience was not being interpreted correctly by the Supreme Court. And in his actual practice, he signed legislation that was inconsistent with the court's ruling in Dred Scott. And uh, when it came to the court's uh, statement in Dred Scott that blacks not only uh, you know, were uh, sub legitimately subjected to slavery, but, but even free blacks could not be citizens of the United States, Lincoln instructed his administration to act contrary to that, contrary to what the court said. And so, for example, grant passports to blacks on the basis of citizenships, patents to black inventors, and so forth. So uh, was, was Lincoln's view here really out of line with the proper Marbury versus Madison understanding of the Constitution, or is there legitimate room sometimes for the executive branch to prefer its own interpretation of the Constitution, even if it conflicts with the court? Lincoln was fighting a civil war. Uh, he said he didn't want to follow the habeas corpus rules. 
And most scholars look at it now think he was wrong in that. The, the, uh, the uh, uh, country in 1834, uh, the Supreme Court decided that the Cherokee Indians owned their own reservation in northern Georgia. And the Georgians better get out of there. They didn't want to get out of there because there was gold. And they stole it all from the Indians. And the Supreme Court said, this land belongs to the Indians. Andrew Jackson said, John Marshall made his decision, now let him enforce it. And he sent troops. And they didn't go there to enforce the decision. They went there to evict the Cherokees, walked on the Trail of Tears to Oklahoma, where if those who survived had descendants who live there to this day. We then fought a civil war. And uh, in Cooper versus Aaron, which you mentioned, was on his watch, I think. <laughs> anyway, no, it wasn't. It was before. But the, the, uh, it was before. But uh, the uh, governor, I can remember that. The governor of Arkansas, uh, Falbus, stood in the schoolhouse door and said, those black children will not come into this white school. I have the militia. And President Eisenhower sent paratroopers. Good for him. Those paratroopers went, this time, not to thwart the law, but to enforce it. They took those children by the hand, and they walked into that white school. Some of them are alive, and I've seen them. They're heroes. And uh, that was a president who decided to enforce the war, the law, with the army. Now, think about Bush v. Gore. Think about school prayer. Think about abortion. Think of how controversial those cases are. Think of how the court might have been wrong in one or the other. We're fallible, we're human beings, and we're divided on those cases. Well, do you think people are going into the streets? You think they won't enforce it? You think they won't be followed? Nobody even notices. Nobody even remarks about that. It's so clear that the public will follow the law, including law that they think is wrong from beginning to end. Well, how did we get there? We fought a civil war. We had 80 years of segregation. We've had a lot of ups and downs in this country. But ultimately, though all nine justices signed that opinion in Cooper and Aaron, you could have had 9,000 judges signing it, and nothing would have happened if the army hadn't gone in. Mm. And it's the habit of obedience to law with which you disagree that has really made it possible to have a country of 300 million people and I think like 800 million views. I mean, the country is a big country. And there are a lot of differences of view. And I see in my courtroom every day, I see people of every race, every religion, every point of view, and they've come in to work out their decisions under law and not in the streets. And you just look around the world, or you look into history, and you see what a treasure that is. And it's not a treasure that either words of the Constitution or any judge's remarks can preserve. Because what preserves it is people who aren't judges, who aren't lawyers, who are ordinary citizens telling their children and their children's children and so forth, is this is how we behave in the United States of America. We have what's called the rule of law. And that's such a blessing that the answer to your question is, of course I think Lincoln was wrong in that, and I don't believe it wasn't necessary either. But I'm not a historian. Before we... Uh... 
open the floor and bring the audience into the conversation, let me ask uh, one uh, last question. Uh, you have a very interesting and uh, nuanced view of the relationship between uh, foreign or international law and uh, American law. This has become a very controversial uh, subject in a number of domains. When is it legitimate to cite uh, foreign law authorities in American uh, law, whether it's constitutional interpretation or the uh, uh, interpretation or construction of a statute? So would you like to articulate a little of your view about that? I know it's so complex that it could take a long time, but what's the short version? The short version is there's a really exciting question that I think isn't so important, but it, politically it's really taken off. <laughs> and and that, that's the question of whether in certain cases one of them happened to involve gay rights and the other one happened to involve the death penalty, and whether the court should have referred to cases of foreign jurisdiction in those two cases. And I didn't even know it was such a politically hot question until I was sitting next to a congressman at one of these seminars, and he started complaining about it, long stop. And I said, I guess that's aimed at me, because I've referred to a lot of foreign. Yep, he said it was. And, and, and I said, well, we do that. I, I refer. I, those aren't binding. It's an American constitution. I follow American law. Uh, but more and more countries throughout the world have adopted documents like ours, protect basic human rights, they have democracies, they have problems like ours, and they have judges who, contrary to popular belief, are human beings. All right, so, so uh, uh, I th they have similar problems, uh, similar institutions. Why not read them? He says, fine, read them. Just don't cite them. So I thought he had a good point. Listen, but there, you know, there are these uh, uh, emerging democracies, and sometimes we refer to their opinions. They refer to ours. They don't bind us. And we don't bind them, but it sort of helps them because the Supreme Court of the United States is an established institution. He says, fine, send them a letter. All right, so, so, so uh, all right, I understand where he's coming from, I think, is that he's afraid we're going to pick up some kind of moral view that's different from our own. Well, I'm not, my moral views are found, formed when I was a student at Lowell High School in San Francisco probably years ago, and uh, they're my life. I mean, you know, my basic person's basic philosophical views and what's right and wrong and values are formed throughout your life, and I'm not going to be affected by reading an opinion of the Supreme Court of uh, some uh, foreign country in that. I, I'm looking to that to help solve certain problems, and I suspect two things. I think a lot of the heat, this is just a, an, a, an amateur political view, so it has no weight. But I think a lot of these things are what my uh, uh, wife, who's a psychologist, calls displacement in psychology. You're angry at A, so you blame B. Uh, 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 homosexual rights and uh, death penalty are enormous politically charged issues. And maybe people who think we're wrong in that, and those are close questions, are blaming the foreign law, which I'd say has the role of B. They have displaced their annoyance. Uh, that's possible. But the reason it's important is we are living in a world where there are all kinds of cases that come up in front of us where, of course, you have to refer to foreign law. Of course, you have to refer to foreign law to understand how discovery rules work in the federal courts. 
when Company A wants information from Company B to present to the European Union cartel authority. Of course you have to refer to law when you're talking about laws that govern the entry of trucks from Mexico and the relationship to NAFTA. Of course when you're considering airline uh, torts under the Warsaw Convention or an antitrust case that involves a plaintiff in Ecuador and a defendant in uh, uh, Holland brought in an American court or Mrs. Altman who wanted to recover six Klimt paintings that she said were uh, taken by the Nazis in World War II from her uncle and you have the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. Uh, uh, it's very important that everybody turn off their cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway. If you want to take that, I'll filibuster for right. a I mean, I'll say what you I see, say You see the point. We're, we're living in a world now where, commercially speaking, and every other way, uh, uh, of course, with the communications and the commerce and everything, it is a world that uh, has existence uh, and affects us tremendously beyond the shores of the country. And everyone who works in law knows that, whether you're a lawyer or whatever role you have. And, of course, uh, you have to take these things into appropriate account. Uh, but the two constitutional cases are the ones that have fed the political uh, uh, dispute. And so on that, I, I say, but uh, it's not, I don't think it's affecting my values, and I don't think it's binding, but where I find something that's useful, and, and whether I agree with that other thing or not, and it helps the analysis, it helps understand the problem, I'll probably refer to it. Okay, let's, uh, let's give you all now an opportunity to uh, get into the discussion. Uh, now, of for course, sake of transparency, not because I think it's binding, but I want people to understand how I'm thinking. Right. I say that because the press is here. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, of course, Justice Breyer uh, cannot and would not uh, address uh, a case that is coming before the court or could come before the court or could come back before the court. So it, it's wrong to even ask him to do that. So I would ask you not to do that. But there are lots of very, very interesting questions that aren't directly on what's going to come before the court, and you're welcome to ask uh, any of those. Now, uh, we're going to have a, a microphone travel around. Will Scharf, who's one of the junior fellows in the Madison program, has the microphone, uh, and uh, he will bring it to you so that we can get it on the recording. Now, we have a custom in the Madison program. We practice a bit of affirmative action here. Which, uh, it, we give preference at the beginning to student questions. So uh, at the beginning, let's uh, see if there are some students who want to ask questions, and then we're going to Open the floor to everybody. Yes, I see a student question uh, up there. Tom? Hi, Justice Breyer. Again, thank you for coming. Um, in reading your book, Active Liberty, I couldn't help but note there was a family resemblance to a theory of constitutional interpretation put forward by John Hart Ely in his book, Democracy and Distrust. I was wondering if uh, John Ely's book influenced you at all, and how and if your approach to constitutional interpretation has changed in your 25 years on the bench. Oh, okay. So two questions. Yeah, uh, John Ely I knew well. He was a colleague of mine when I was teaching, and I'm sure he's influenced my thinking a lot. I mean, it's, it's not, you know, I'm sure there are differences, and, uh, but, but there, there, is a, there is a basic approach. There are a lot of things that came into this. Somebody said, well, I should have cited this thing or that thing or the other. And, but once you go down that road, it's impossible in a short book. So uh, there are loads of things. Uh, it's a great thing in law. I don't, I, it's, a, it's, a, uh, uh, it's a vice in law to be original. Uh, <laughs> in, indeed, the, the basic rule for all lawyers and all judges is nothing 
has ever been done for the first time. All right? So there is a lot, a lot of things that influence uh, the way I'm looking at this, and that's certainly one of them. And in changing, the major change, I think, is, is what I described. Gradually, over time, a judge on our court does develop a kind of approach, not a theory necessarily, but an approach to the document as a whole, which suggests how the different parts might fit together, and that has an influence on the cases. And that's, what I, that's the kind of thinking. That's what I really want to do. I want to show people, if they're interested, how a judge on this court might approach what the thinking's like in, in, the, in, in the area that's most important to people. H how do we actually decide these cases? And in a way, while it's more organized than my actual thinking in a particular case, it's trying to cast some light on that so other people can understand it. Tom mentioned John Hart Ely in the uh, first of his uh, questions, and any student at Princeton who has studied uh, constitutional interpretation in the past 25 years, well before uh, my time under Professor Murphy as well, uh, has read Democracy and Distrust. It's a very important part of the syllabus in constitutional interpretation. And we take a lot of pride at Princeton because he not only contributed such an important book for our course, but he was in the course. Uh, he was an undergraduate uh, at Princeton where he took the course in constitutional interpretation. I've been trying to get the registrar for a number of years to tell me what his grade was, but it's, <laughs> we're still within the 50-year uh, rule. Uh, yes, uh, another student question over here, Will. Uh, Justice Breyer, uh, I'm from South Dakota, and so it's been interesting to come to New Jersey where, as you know, South Dakota is somewhat more conservative than the East Coast. Uh, so I'm interested in knowing what you think the role is of uh, full faith and credit in a time when it appears, uh, once again, that states seem to be uh, diverging on a number of very contentious social issues. I, I won't have a good answer for you on that. I mean, full faith and credit clause is part of the Constitution. I, I, and, and there is a whole, you know, history of it, and there's a, <laughs> cases on it. And when I have to decide a case involving it, I'll go deal with them. It's not the case, and this is what your question suggests, it's not the case that I'm sitting there filled with views, looking for an opportunity to apply them. That's just not the job. I mean, what happens as a judge is that you may have general approach or something, but and that's why judges are really reluctant at confirmation hearings and other places to start expressing how they feel about things. It really happens that what I might say is a cocktail party or even at a lecture on a particular matter doesn't look quite the same when the decision is for real. When the decision is for real, there is a very complicated formal process where I will read the briefs with care, uh, have memos prepared, look them up, uh, the cases, and then hear the oral argument and consult with my colleagues. And it's only after that process takes place that I have what is a I hope, a sensible view on the question. And that's why I couldn't really respond very well to you, even if I knew. Well, having, having mentioned that, uh, Justice Breyer, your own confirmation went through rather smoothly without a great deal of uh, controversy. But of course, we have had, both before and after your confirmation, some very fiery uh, confirmations. Do you have any reflections you could share with us on the confirmation uh, process? Is the kind of conflict we've seen uh, just inevitable? or have things gotten out of hand in your judgment as far as selection of 
as far as what we ask and press the nominees on uh, in the confirmation process? Well, I'd say two things. One is, remember, I'm not an appointing person. I am the appointed person. Asking me about the confirmation process is like asking for the recipe for chicken a la king from the point of view of the chicken. <laughs> that's, that's absolutely true. You're a chicken um, who got off easily. In right. your <laughs> this is a political process, and uh, it is a way, I uh, say, uneasy compromises in the Constitution. This is one of them. A person who is confirmed will go into a job where, quite properly, the public loses control, as I think it should. If you want independent judges, it must. But going there, there is politics on the way. And this is a democratic window into that process. So people may look at the person there. I, in my process, I, I knew it was on television, and I knew that 10 million people were watching, and if they didn't like what they saw, that's it. And uh, I think people are pretty tolerant, and uh, maybe I was lucky or whatever. It worked out all right, as far as I was concerned. The, the, uh, and they clicked off. I was very boring. They clicked off. <laughs> I, I thought that was great. Uh, uh, but uh, how and when and what form this process should take is something that others have to work out in terms of the result and whether they like it, because it's a political matter. So even if I had views about it, I wouldn't talk about them publicly. Okay. Uh, yes, uh, Scott Novick. I wanted to ask about something which was touched on indirectly earlier, which is a question of whether there could be a constitutional violation which is non-justiciable, a violation where, say, the court is unable to have any there, role There are in certain solving. areas where there is. There's a doctrine called political questions, and then there are always questions of foreign affairs and so forth. So there are a certain number of areas in the law where uh, procedures within Congress and there's debate about how uh, uh, broad those areas are and what their content is. But that there are such areas, I think, is pretty universally acknowledged. Well, the, the, I think uh, one uh, recent uh, uh, occasion on which it became relevant was when some suits were filed uh, to try to, uh, to, to end the Vietnam War. And the courts took the position that uh, it's not the province of the no, judiciary to example. control the war power. Yes, uh, other questions? Yes, right over here. We've got two, and, and you guys sort it out between yourselves. Which of you gets the microphone? <laughs> uh, Justice Breyer, my question, uh, recently, I, if I'm not mistaken, the Supreme Court has ruled that federal law trumps state law regarding medical marijuana. Um, and I was wondering, it seems to me like in that case, um, there was neither in the, the medical marijuana was homegrown. It was neither interstate nor commerce. And so I'm wondering how you reconcile federalism um, with that decision. Okay. Oh, well, there are two things in what you said. First is a, a principle that's been true from the beginning of the republic. Uh, federal law trumps state law. Holmes said you could have a federal government. You could have a nation uh, where the Supreme Court did not have the last word as to the constitutionality of laws of Congress. It's possible to imagine such a system. Many countries have it. But it is not possible to imagine a single nation without the power of the federal law to overcome state law. So there's no doubt about that power. 
And Holmes and others made very clear why there has to be a central authority so that state law cannot trump federal law. The only persons who did, John C. Calhoun uh, and others, imposing the doctrine of nullification, lost the Civil War. And since then, I don't think there's been any serious claim of a contrary view. The marijuana case, what you're thinking of is decisions um, in uh, our court, where I was pretty much in dissent, uh, which have said that the Commerce Clause, which gives Congress the power to enact laws that affect where interstate commerce is affected, is somewhat more narrow than the dissenters, like me, thought. Right? And so now when you get to the marijuana case, you're simply talking about an application of that principle. And in that case, the majority thought that growing marijuana does have implications for interstate commerce, and therefore Congress could properly regulate it. Okay, next, uh, next door. Um, you mentioned that uh, part of your perspective on constitutional interpretation is to ascertain the, the purpose of the overall purpose of the Constitution, and that figures into, um, you know, how you think about it, and also to, to sort of ascertain the reasons behind uh, the reasons why um, the reasons why particular language was included, and that that figures into um, your perspective on the Constitution. Um, and I'm sure you're aware that there's, um, you know, a very common objection to this, which is that um, number one, you know, determining what the reasons for the, the inclusion of a particular language for, of particular language was, or, in, or determining the purpose of the document, um, may be difficult to do, especially um, years removed from when the document was written, um, and also that. Um, those who wrote the language may not even have agreed on, um, at, at the time that it was written, may not even have agreed on why um, the, the language was included and may have had their own reasons and may have, um, you know, only reached a compromise to include some particular language. So, I mean, how do you deal with this um, objection if, if you want to use um, that information in your decision-making process? Uh, that's a, an important question, and, and there's no doubt that in the book I devote a chapter to that, and it runs as a theme. It's a very important question, and it concerns a, a major argument of different approaches towards the Constitution, uh, the approach that's somewhat different from mine. People describe as originalism, uh, and let's look to the uh, framer's intent and so forth. Now, what is that argument about? Well, in my opinion, and you'd have to ask others on the other side of it, you know, for their characterization, but, but my, my characterization of it is the following. Uh, judges, indeed virtually all judges, when they're approaching a text and trying to interpret it, have six tools available, important tools. One, I'll look at the language, and so will everybody else. Language. History. What's the history of this provision? Tradition. What have these words traditionally come to mean? 
precedent. What has the court held about the interpretation in the past? Purpose. What is the basic human purpose of this text, whether it's in the Constitution or whether it's in a statute? And when it's in the Constitution, we often use the word values rather than purpose, but it's the same idea. The Fourth Amendment is about privacy. Part of the First Amendment is about speech. Those are different values, but that's what underlies it. And six, consequences. What consequences? Not any old consequence in the world, but if I decide this way rather than that way, what will happen in the world as a result of the one or the other? And then look at those consequences in terms of the values that are at stake. For example, consequences related to speech are relevant to a First Amendment case, and those related to privacy are relevant to a Fourth Amendment case, by and large. So everybody uses text, history, tradition, precedent, purpose or value, and consequence. Now, some judges, and I tend to think Justice Scalia and others, uh, who are more in this line, it's, are emphasizing the first four. Will they say the last two are never relevant? Wrong. They'll say they are relevant. But they'll say, by and large, we can make do without them. And moreover, if we use them too much, you stop being objective and you become too subjective and the judge reads his own opinion into the law. That's one view. The other view, which is probably mine, I'm associated with that, that's fair enough, is that those last two things, the purposes and the consequences, are very, very important. And that often in cases, particularly those in the Supreme Court, where we only take cases because other judges have reached different conclusions, they're quite difficult, there's a lot to be said on both sides, that's our normal reason for taking a case, the text, history, tradition, precedent won't give you the answer. And therefore, look to these other two. And then I'll say, by the way, I understand the problem of subjectivity, and I don't want to be subjective either. And I think, by looking into purposes, as determined both historically and how it's come to be seen over time, and looking at consequences, and writing down exactly what I think about that, I can be free, or free of anyone, as anyone can be, of subjectivity, and I'm trying to be objective there, and I've written down exactly what I think, so others can criticize it if I'm not. Now, I think that's the nature of the argument. And if you want to uh, look at it in sort of historical terms, as one judge put it, a great judge, who said, you cannot, you don't want to be subjective as a judge. You have to avoid that insofar as it's possible. And you don't want to be wooden. And wooden means looking at phrases in the statute or the Constitution as if they set up a matrix and that you could deduce the answer from some kind of logical determination based on language and history pretty much alone. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants to be subjective. Nobody wants to be wooden. And so trying to sail between those two. Now, we have those who say we can do a better job by looking just at those first four, language, history, tradition, precedent, and those who say no. I'm on the second side. 
I think we'll do a better job by bringing into major account purpose, consequences, so that that Constitution, which was written in 1789, can work today to impose the values which are enduring upon facts which change every minute. In other words, it works in today's world. But that's how I'm seeing it. And I think others will have to say whether I have the better approach, and it's not mine. I find it back in the law, going long, long back with judges whom I admire. But uh, I think others will have to say uh, which is the approach that will find that main channel between the wooden and the subjective better. But this book is, in sense, implicitly an argument for the approach I've described. Can I take a quick crack at it? (laughs) (laughs) Here's my problem. When it comes to the evaluation of consequences, obviously, there must be an evaluative standard. They're not just, they don't evaluate themselves. So then the question becomes, is that evaluative standard, which can be determinative in a case, if we're evaluating consequences by reference to a standard, that standard can be determinative. Is that standard itself derived from the Constitution, from its text, its the logic, its logical implications of its provisions, perhaps the structure or its original understanding? Or is it brought by the judge from somewhere no, other no. than? Constitution. It's from the text. Yeah, it's, it's from the Constitution. From- You say, what is the Constitution? It's from the Constitution. Now, I'll give you an example. Normally, you can look back and say the framers, you know, when they had the Commerce Clause, they were not, they didn't know about, you know, they knew about buggies and horses and so forth, and they didn't know about uh, uh, the Internet, and they didn't know about automobiles and airplanes, but of course they intended that word commerce to apply to things they didn't know about. And similarly, they they intended the word uh, freedom of speech to apply to the Internet, even though they never heard of the Internet. So, of course, I'm looking to their intent when I decide what the values are that apply today. But that's easy. I mean, that's easy. And there the question usually is, uh, uh, well, a famous example. What about about, uh, Brown versus Board of Education? So you say, well... The people who wrote Brown versus Board of Education themselves sent their children to segregated schools. To which I think the answer is, so what? The answer is, so what? Because they wrote a value into that 14th Amendment, and it's called equal protection, equal respect. And they might have thought that in 1864, that principle was consistent with segregation. But if they thought that, they were wrong because the principle didn't turn out to be consistent with segregation. It turned out to be inconsistent with segregation. And anybody who doubted that just in 1954 could travel to the South and probably elsewhere too and open their eyes. And they would have seen what was going on. And that is not consistent with equal protection of the law. Just as today, you could have a statute, and the statute says we're going to protect, to use a mundane example, uh, moving from the loftier to the less, uh, but it's common. The Congress could pass a statute, and that statute could say you must protect endangered species. At the same time, they pass a statute, a different statute, that says here are licenses to hunt silver foxes. And 15 years later, it turns out that silver foxes are, are endangered. 
Nobody has a problem with that. Of course the silver fox is protected because the first statute enacts a value and the second has to do with facts that are changeable. I think that's ordinary in law. So I don't have a problem with looking at certain factual things they thought about then or maybe minor matters of value uh, which are inconsistent given the world today with the basic value in the provision. Now, you want a hard one? Shall I go on with this? Is uh, this no, I was just going to, I, I just want to stress the point that the evaluative standard then must come from the Constitution itself, which yes. means that when you get to six, probably to five as well, but when you get to six, to understand six, it's got to be related back to one of those first four. No, well, yes and no, yeah, yes. Uh, here's an example. <laughs> I, I'm not giving up the first four. Nobody's giving up the first four. I'm simply uh, uh, saying they don't often, uh, or don't often, really, don't give often give you the final answer. And the, even with the values, that's why these cases, you can't reduce them easily to a set of formulas. But here's a hard one where you're going to probably think I'm wrong. But a very difficult one is brought, a very difficult question arises through the Establishment Clause. What is the Establishment Clause actually about? And people have different views of that. We had a case, we've had several cases. One involving the constitutionality of school vouchers. Vouchers that in amounts of billions of dollars could be given to parents that will then pay, if they wish, parochial schools to teach the children, including prayer, if that's what goes on in the parochial school. Or, or any other school. They or, yeah, or any other school. That's right. It's neutral. It's neutral. And another case involved the Ten Commandments, uh, two monuments, one in uh, Kentucky where someone put a Ten Commandments in a courtroom and another in Texas where the Ten Commandments became a monument. Uh, there was a monument to the Ten Commandments. Do those matters those factual instances, violate the Establishment Clause. Well, to answer that, I think you have to say, what is this Establishment Clause really about? Agreed. And to do that, you have to go back into some history where I'm not a historian, but I can read, and I think that, that if I simplify the views that, that I came up with, uh, say, I'd say, very simplified, that that, uh, that clause reflects a fact about Europe in the 17th century. And that fact is that they were murdering each other, right, left, and center, including in England, over matters of religion. People felt very strongly. And finally, they reached a truce. They discovered that they were not going to get anywhere through killing each other. And therefore, the truce was, you practice your religion and teach it to your children and I'll practice mine, and I'll teach it to my children. And that's an understanding that has led to the development of lots of individual liberty, including free speech and in other areas that really come out of that history. Now, if that's so, there is a value underlying that clause which has to do with diminishing conflict within a society based upon religion. And if I look at the decisions made in our court during the 20th century, Brennan, Black, others, 
which had to, who had to deal with this question. As I see the decisions, and I'm purposely being subjective there, not because I'm being subjective, but I don't want to have other people necessarily, if they wouldn't like to be associated with this view, they don't have to be. But, but the, the, the point is, I see those decisions as trying to apply that basic value to a nation that after the Civil War passed from being a colony of England, where everybody was really English, except those, you know, the law wouldn't notice, like the slaves and so forth. But we changed, and uh, we became a nation of many, many different racial groups, religious groups, national origins, 50 religions now, 50 or more in the United States of America. And therefore, that clause has to adapt to achieve the basic value. Now, how does that help me decide a particular case? Well, the Ten Commandments, which I thought was really a borderline matter. I mean, the Ten Commandments is, of course, a religious document. But religious documents, including the Ten Commandments, can be used for secular purposes. I mean, that happens all the time. What was this? Well, for reasons I won't go into in great detail, but I look at the facts in the Kentucky case, and it seems, given those facts there, that basically what's happening is that the appearance of those Ten Commandments on the wall of the courthouse is designed, in part, to further a religious view. Well, I put that on the religious side. What about Texas? Well, Texas... There was a state capital. There were 17 monuments. One was the Ten Commandments. Those monuments had been there for 40 years without it upsetting anybody. And uh, the uh, overall, uh, overall uh, uh, purpose of this, according to the brochure, was to show the values of the Texans. And that monument on the Ten Command about the Ten Commandments was put there by a civic organization called the Eagles, which was a secular organization that apparently got the idea because Cecily Demi had a movie that he was trying to promote. <laughs> this isn't very religious. And uh, moreover, if we get into the business of saying you can't have the Ten Commandments anywhere, ever, anywhere in public places, there'll be people chiseling the Ten Commandments off of monuments all over the country. What's that going to do to the harmony uh, based on religion that this is supposed to promote this amendment. And similarly, if people or religious groups are going around trying to put those things up all over the place, what's that going to do? That's also going to promote disharmony. And therefore, I reached a view that the one is consistent with the clause and the other is not. Now, to show you the weakness in my argument, which must be there, I was the only one who thought that. <laughs> But, you but also there we are. The outcome in both cases. That's you true. were the deciding. That's true. That's vote true. In both cases. Oh, I do my best. Like <laughs> Michigan, you caught hell from both sides. Yeah, yeah, that's result. right. That's All right. 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 Floor now is generally uh, open. Who would like to be recognized? Yes, down uh, down here, uh, Will. Yeah. In um, Justice O'Connor's uh, opinion in the Michigan cases in which you concurred, uh, it contains those uh, words of 25 years. Uh, does that, in your opinion, in any way set a time limit on the precedential uh, value of that particular case, that it's almost an invitation to re-look, review it in 25 years? It does say 25 years. It says we expect this will not be necessary in 25 years. 
So in 25 years, if you want to come in, I'm, we may not be there, but come in and argue that now there is a time limit. I'm sure there'll be an argument at that time. Uh, it does say that, there's no doubt, and, but it doesn't, it says we expect. So what I use that phrase for as a person, not as a judge, and by the way, again, I have to issue a warning. I've been describing some of the cases I've decided and some of the cases some other people decide. And what I'm doing is describing those from memory. And memory is fallible. So if there is any discrepancy between what I say and what those words actually say in the case, remember, what counts is what the words are in the case. <laughs> what does not count is what I happen to think about it with the benefits of hindsight and all other uh, uh, self-related justifying ideas. But uh, so remember that. And that's true of these words. They say what they say. Now, as a person, what I t sometimes uh, uh, point to those words for is to point out one thing that interested me, not as a judge, but as a person in those cases. As a person, I was interested in the fact that the number, and we had all the numbers in front of us, the number of places at the University of Michigan Law School that would have gone to minorities in the absence of affirmative action was not 15%, it may have been 4 or 5%, it was lower, but it had been growing. It had been growing continuously. So, as a person, I look at that and I say, what is the inner city school systems like? What are those systems like in the United States of America today? And you can find numbers on that too. And what you will see is that in place after place, those inner city schools are becoming more and more segregated, that they have weaker and weaker education. In other words, they're a real problem, which every one of us knows. And so I will sometimes say to people at major universities, don't think this is somebody else's problem. If you want to uh, maintain student bodies that uh, reflect America, uh, maybe somebody should do, about, do something about that. And maybe Harvard, and maybe Yale, and maybe Princeton have a direct stake in trying to see that instead of those, because the inner city schools have uh, teachers that find it uh, you know, more difficult to recruit the teachers, more difficult to have the learning going on, more difficult, we all know that litany, and it's all borne out in the numbers. So if that 25 years uh, puts on uh, let's call it a catalyst, or let's say a little spur uh, for a lot of people to feel uh, maybe this is a problem uh, we should deal with. I'd say as a person, uh, well, so much the better. But that's a commercial message of the kind I was giving earlier, and I'm not speaking as a judge. Uh, Mike Rossi. Undoubtedly, the most fundamental act of citizenship is the right to vote. I'd like to go back to Oregon versus Mitchell prior to the 26th Amendment, which gave 18-year-olds the right to vote. I'd like both members of the panel to comment on the court's approach in Oregon versus Mitchell, commenting on the Congress's right power to grant 18-year-olds the vote under the Voting Rights Act of, of 1970. Oh, you mean whether felons can vote or not? No, no, no. I can't comment on this. No. What? It, what was the the Voting Rights Act of 1970 granted 18-year-olds the right to vote oh. in federal That's in and the, state. That in the Constitution That's been superseded by the 26th Amendment. Yeah. But there was a very, very lively 
Well, that was the, the, the controversies, legally speaking, that were there before I even got there. Right. I don't normally have a view about. And one good thing about something being written into the Constitution is I no longer have to think about whether it's constitutional. <laughs> so I as an example for active liberty, Justice, mm -hmm. Justice Douglas argues, look, we, we ask 18-year-olds to lay down their life for the country. Therefore, they should have the right to vote. And Justice Harlan argues that Congress has no power to prescribe who can vote in state elections and federal elections. So if you could comment on that. I, I won't get an intelligent comment on it. I mean, of course, I, you know, no, I, there's no point, because you're more familiar with it than I, and I've never really looked into that in any depth. Was there a hand up up back there? Yeah, yeah you. Do you elaborate on how you choose which courses, sorry, which um, cases to hear? Because um, I, I wonder if that defines the social agenda for the nation before you even get to the Supreme Court debate. People probably don't even know the technical rules. So perhaps you could that, that's a good question, and it's much more mechanical than you think. Uh, the, the, it's very interesting because it, uh, it's hard to find out, actually, unless you're really like in some seminar in law school. Uh, the, the, uh, think, think of the American judicial system, 50 state systems and one federal system. Now, think of the 50 state legislatures all out there passing laws and Congress, which is the federal part. Now, and the federal constitution. Most law in the United States is state law. All family law, Almost all criminal law, almost all uh, uh, commercial law, tort law, education law, even environmental law. Uh, in fact, if you want a rough estimate, most people who are aware of this will say 90 to 95 percent is state, and maybe 5 percent is federal, and federal is by no means the most important part. I so say you want to help people in your community as a lawyer, go back and work at the state or local level. Those are the laws that affect people enormously. Oh, Congress does too. So first, we're a federal court. But unlike other federal courts, which sometimes handle state questions, we don't. We are a federal court that handles only federal questions. So we're already limited in what we're going to decide to matters of federal law. Now think of all the cases progressing through the state systems, 50 state systems plus a federal system. And once again, by the way, probably 95% of all the cases are over there in the state systems and maybe 5% or less in the federal system. But it's a little confusing because state courts can handle some federal issues and federal courts can handle some state issues. But still, that 95-5% ratio is pretty steady. Now the cases get into trial. Most of them settle, thank goodness. Maybe 8 million went in. Maybe after the trials and then one side wins, the other side loses. A losing lawyer appeals. You always appeal on a question of law. Not, not rarely or if ever on a question of fact. Appeal on a question of law. That losing lawyer thinks that the judge is really stupid uh, or uh, maybe incompetent at best. The winning lawyer, what does he think of the judge? Nothing. He thinks he's a good lawyer. All right, but but the uh, it's not. But any case, the losing lawyer the losing lawyer appeals, and finally it works its way up, and probably in the final state supreme courts or the federal appeals courts, there may be about eighty thousand to a hundred thousand cases every year that have a question of federal law they decided, 
and probably just under 10% of those come to the Supreme Court. Someone, the losing lawyer, will say, Supreme Court, we want you to review the final determination on this matter of law. We'll get about 8,000, what they're called are their requests or petitions for certiorari. When we grant a petition for certiorari, that means we'll hear the case. Now, how many do we grant? 80, thereabouts. You see, it's 80 out of about 8,000, out of about maybe 80,000, maybe out of about 8 million. Now, you have asked a very good question, which is, well, how do you decide which 80? Because part of my job every week is I sit there with my law clerks looking at those 150 petitions that come in each week. And we have a pool of law clerks, and they'll go through the 150, and they'll write memos on each of them. And uh, you say, well, why don't I do that? And I say, I'd rather have a human being called a law clerk do it because uh, that human being can handle five and can look through that scrawled, idiotic-sounding petition to look for the instance where occasionally that scrawled, uh, lunatic-seeming petition, well, he's right. He's right, and I'll never find that. So I'd rather have a human being called a law clerk go through those petitions in depth than for me to pretend to. But anyway, I end up with a, a stack like this each week, and I'll go through them pretty quickly, maybe an hour or two, to separate out what I think is possible from what I think is impossible. That's what you want to know. And once I tell you the criteria and how I can do it so quickly and how I bet if you did it tomorrow, and we both looked at our pile of small, we've separated out possibles from large, impossible. I bet they wouldn't differ that much once I tell you the criterion. And the criterion is this. Is there a need for a uniform rule of interpretation nationally on this legal question? That's a little abstract, so let me make it more concrete. Look, if... Every judge has decided this legal question the same way. Is there a need for us? How many think yes? How many think no? Correct, no. Of course, no. What need for us? Remember, I told you we're not so, uh, we're not final because we're so brilliant. We're brilliant because we're final. All right? So they're good judges too. And so there isn't much need for us. But now suppose that they've all reached different decisions on the same question of federal law. Some interpret it one way, some interpret it the other way. Is there a need for us? Who thinks yes? Yes, you're right. Who thinks no? No, you're wrong. All right, but the, 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 the point is, that's what we're doing. We are trying to, now what I've told you has exceptions and it isn't 100%. We might take the Guantanamo case as we did, even though there wasn't a split in the circuit because of the importance, etc. And we might not take cases where there is a split because in the particular circumstance it can work itself out or there are procedural difficulties or whatever. But what I've told you is basically the key. And President Taft, when he was Chief Justice of the United States, explained this a hundred and some odd years ago, he said, uh, look, we're not there to correct errors. They've all had a trial. They've all had an appeal. Sometimes they've had two or three appeals. So it's rare, but not impossible. Say a death case or something. It's not impossible, but it's rare that we'll take a case just to correct an error below. But it is not rare, and that is the job 
to try to create this uniform rule of interpretation where circumstances require it. Normally, where there are splits in the circuit. You see, once I tell you that, then you see how to proceed tomorrow. And you see what my law clerks will be doing as they look over what I hand them back after going through that pile. And then we'll have a discussion about it, and I'll figure out, well, uh, do I want something discussed at the conference here? And I can go back and read the opinion, and sometimes I will there. Uh, and any one of us can put uh, any item on the conference agenda. And if one of us puts it on the conference agenda, then when we're in conference and discussing the matter, uh, we'll vote on it. And we'll go around the table, and people will briefly comment. And if there are four votes, it's a grant. And if there aren't four votes, it's a deny. That's what it is. If I hear something there and I think, my God, I didn't think of that, I can, like anyone else, say, hold it over for next week. And if I say hold it over for next week or the week thereafter, the week thereafter, I'll go back and I'll really look into it and I'll write a memo. And uh, uh, then we'll consider that the next week. So, and it, it, so that, that's basically the process. And, that's, and it's mechanical to the point where I'm not sitting there thinking, oh, what would be a nice social agenda? I never think that. No one does. What we do think is we're presented with a set of cases that come up, these 150 uh, weekly requests, and we look at those, and we're trying to figure out, do they or do they not meet the criteria? And uh, uh, the criterion is what I just told you. And, and so that's why you say, well, what's going to come up? I have to say, I don't know. I'm in a way the last person to know. Uh, not the first, because I see what comes up when I read those 150. Well, you didn't know it, Justice Breyer, but we're before a distinguished three-judge panel of the local uh, judiciary. Uh, very honored to have Judge Karchman, Judge Anik, and yeah. Mr. Bergman. I've elevated him to judge on this occasion. And I think that uh, Mr. Bergman has Judge, judge Schuster's here, not Judge Anik, Judge Schuster. Uh, I think Mr. Bergman has a question, so can we get the mic up to uh, him? And then this will have to be our last uh, question, and then we're going to move to a very special presentation. Justice Breyer, uh, can you tell me whether, in your view, there are ever interpretive dilemmas posed by the fact that the framers themselves were, as we all know, uh, universally white, male, land-owning, and in some cases slave-owning uh, group of men uh, who obviously have created uh, the text uh, that you have indicated that you look to as the first standard from a language standpoint, the first standard that you apply in constitutional interpretation. Okay. Yeah, uh, yes, is the, is the answer. The most obvious being a, a big question that was really resolved by the Warren Court is uh, how do these first ten amendments, which uh, include the Bill of Rights, you know, the First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, abridging the freedom of speech. Well, how do those apply to the states? It says Congress. And really, the framers were thinking Congress. They weren't thinking it applied to the states. They were thinking Congress. The states were supposed to run their own show. And if there's a guarantee against a freedom of speech that applies to states, they'll think of one in the state constitution. Well, probably, 
uh, what has happened is the 14th Amendment, which was enacted after the Civil War, created quite a different country in many respects, and reading that backwards to the Bill of Rights, which was enacted before, it incorporated the major protections so that individuals would be protected against state interference. That's a radical change in many respects from the way in which the framers thought about it. And you have to look into the 14th Amendment, and there were many, many arguments on that matter in the 1960s about how that applied. And I'm sure if you went back, though it's now well settled, uh, you would see a tremendous dilemma of the kind you're discussing and efforts to resolve it. So the answer must be yes, because you start out with a constitution that is democratic in 1789 as applied to a small segment of the population. And bravo that it was democratic, but not bravo that it applied to the small segment. And so you have a gradual uh, increase uh, through the Civil War and women's suffrage and all uh, the different aspects of it, where the democratic community has increased. So to go back to the basic principle of democracy, that I don't think has changed, but it's become more democratic in light of the increase in the community. Well, now let me uh, welcome uh, Aaron Spolin of the uh, Princeton Whig Cliosophic Society uh, to the uh, dais for a special presentation for Justice Breyer. Thank you, Professor George, for calling me up. And thank you both so much, Justice Breyer and Professor George, for your public comments. I'm here today uh, with Sriram Harid to speak on behalf of the American Whig Cliosophic Society and its nearly 500 undergraduate members. And today, it's my distinct pleasure to present Justice Breyer with our James Madison Award. Back in 1769, it was James Madison himself who founded the Whig Society here at Princeton. And in our 237-year history, we've discussed political issues. We've trained future leaders. And we've given our James Madison Award to public servants such as former President Bill Clinton, Senator Bill Frist, and former Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, among others, public servants whose work has inspired Whig Clio members and Princetonians alike. And Justice Breyer's work for this country has inspired us. He served throughout his career in all three branches of the federal government. He's interpreted our Constitution from the highest court for nearly 12 years. And at a time when some public servants shy away from discussing and debating the key issues of their jobs, Justice Breyer has come here today to defend and discuss his judicial philosophy. James Madison once said, the advancement and dissemination of knowledge are the only guarantees of true liberty. Here today and throughout his career, Justice Breyer has advanced the knowledge of what liberty can mean in America. And so, Justice Breyer, because of your continued service for this nation, and because of your continued fight for liberty through the law, it's our honor to present you with our James Madison Award. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is very nice. I'm, I'm delighted to have it. It works. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very, very much.
just what every judge uh, needs, another gavel, right, Judge Karshman? Yes. <laughs> well, let me uh, join my voice to uh, Aaron's in thanking Justice Breyer for this wonderful uh, gift that he has conferred upon us of his presence here and the opportunity to participate in a lively exchange uh, with him. It's just been a tremendous privilege. It's been a great two days, Steve. Thank you so much for coming. It's Thank just you. been uh, wonderful, and you are uh, welcome back here at any time, and we'll be back after you, I'm sure, before long uh, to come back. I, I think this is your first, at least first, first lengthy trip to uh, to Princeton, but I don't want it to be your... Uh, no, it's beautiful. How did I, it's fabulous. <laughs> yeah, we great, we, Princeton. We bring this weather on anytime you like. <laughs> right. Well, it's not just the weather. You know. <laughs> and I want to thank very all nice of you uh, for thank coming you. and helping to make this event uh, such, a, uh, such a wonderful one. I will close with a commercial announcement. Just... Reminders of two uh, very important events we have coming up in the Madison program in the fall. This is our last uh, major event for this year. We do have an event uh, at reunions on uh, advising uh, presidents when uh, four members of our faculty, one of whom is me, uh, also Professor Blinder, uh, President Shapiro, uh, and uh, Professor Rosen will be talking about advising uh, presidents. We've, uh, in various capacities, uh, had that opportunity. But then in November, November 6th, 7th, and 8th, uh, we will have uh, Dr. Leon Cass of the University of Chicago, formerly chairman of the President's Council on Bioethics, who will be here to uh, deliver the three Charles E. Test uh, lectures for the 2006-2007 uh, school year. And then November the 20th, I'm very, very pleased to say, uh, our colleague, the distinguished Civil War historian, uh, Professor Emeritus James McPherson, We'll be delivering our annual Herbert W. Vaughn Lecture on America's Founding Principles. So I hope that you'll put those events on your schedule. And now that you'll join me one more time in thanking Justice Stephen Brunson. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you.